the message needs to be we need to re-question what we're being taught and decide what is the, the grounds for it in terms of research? Is there anything that's emerging? And is it making sense to me? friends and welcome to The Block, the Building Learning and Organizational Culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby, and on today's episode, I have my good friend, Dr. Kuva Jacobs, here to talk about all of your favorite learning myths and to talk about the LinkedIn group that we've started to have an open forum about learning myths. So whether learning styles are your jam or your pet peeve, we have something for you. Hi, Kuba. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you doing? Good. I'm so glad that we finally get to meet on video. So why don't we just start by you telling me a little bit about you, how you got to where you are today, what you're currently working on, anything fun you want to share? Sure. So I started my career way back in the day. I did a degree in maths and a PhD, uh, and I went on to do a PhD. Um, so the reason why I decided to do my PhD was because during my degree, I actually found that I was really challenged by the maths that I did. And sometimes I felt like I didn't quite understand what they were teaching me and I felt like there was a better way. So um, I started, it was back in the day when Flash was around. So I started building all of these really cool uh, Flash modules um, where I'd get the maths and I'd bring it to life. So I'd have, for example, a maths in the spring and you'd see it animating or you know different different things like that where you could actually visualize what was happening and I also explored what did that mean for the learners how can we use these types of visual tools and um, you know interactive online assets to be able to help people to understand more deeply uh, from there I decided that I was I've had enough of academia um but and so I I feel that so I went out into corporate um my first role was in a telecommunication company so I got the the joy of writing telecommunication training um which was yeah very challenging and uh and then I've literally worked in almost every industry you can imagine so yeah uh currently working with um, health clients, banking. Um, I I love my NFP clients because I think that they're amazing, the things that they do. Um, So I've got a a disability client at the moment. And um, for me, the big thing, though, is finding those clients who have projects where they want to make a real difference with their learning and they want to build something that's actually going to have, you know, a proper impact. So... Um, I'm always trying to look for those ones. Um, I have had a, you know, very small learning consultancy for uh, a long time and I've just recently launched a new consultancy um, called Emergent Learning and uh, with my business partner, Charles. And our goal for that is really, uh, yeah, to build that consultancy model where we look for those clients that do want Um, learning that's aligned to the business outcomes. Yes, I love it. That's so exciting. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) Awesome. So let's dive right in and talk about the learning pyramid, probably my least favorite of the learning myths. 
Um, the Learning Pyramid, for our, the listeners who maybe haven't seen it, but if you have ever been on LinkedIn, you probably have. Um, it's the one that says, like, how we retain information. Like, 90% of what we retain is by teaching others. And then it, like, goes through other methods. And then it says, like, at the at the tippy top, it's, like, 5% of what is taught to you through lecture is retained. And it, then it says also that 10% of what you read is retained as well, which that's the first thing I take issue with. But anyway, I'm going to let you talk about the learning pyramid and why it's a myth and what is wrong with it. Okay. Um, well, first of all, whenever you've got statistics like this, nice round numbers, I'd, I'd really <laughs> like to know where these statistics actually came from. Yeah. Like, is there any research behind this or is it just something that sounds good? Apart from the fact that the way that it's presented in the pyramid is actually visually not lining up. So 90% of the pyramid doesn't have 90% of teach others in it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really confused. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it doesn't add up to 100. Oh, no, that's how much you retain <laughs> of the information. So that kind of makes it. So it, it shouldn't it should be like, so if you teach. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, if you teach okay. others, then you remember 90%, which I do somewhat agree with um, in that I think that teaching others really is a great way to retain information. So oh, yeah. I'm absolutely not yeah. arguing with that, um, but I'm still not sure if you retain 90% because I've taught a lot of things in my life and I can't remember. Half of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and there's like, there's this, um, there's like, it's a good myth, right? I think a good myth has to have like elements of truth, like elements of things that are believable. Absolutely. And I think to your point, like that teaching somebody something is a great way to retain something, but, and lectures, like everyone hates lectures, right? So like when you have the top and bottom like that, people are, like tend to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. I hated a lecture and you know, like, so there are elements to it that are, that are true and that are like good ways to learn. But like, for me, the reading one, the reading one's really where it gets me because it's like, oh, you only retain 10% of what you read. But like, I'm an avid, avid reader. And that's how I consume most of my information is by reading. And so like, so I guess I the know, question I, would be, it offends me. <laughs> do, do you forget 90% of what you read after you read it? It's more the question. No. No, because if I did, I have to read everything so many times or like take so many notes and like, yeah, there is stuff that I forget and like I only take, but I think that's anything, right? Like we only take the important bits and this goes with the other myth too, the forgetting curve, right? Like it depends on the what, right? And I think that that's lost, that nuance is lost in a lot of these myths mm -hmm. Is that like, what are we learning here? And and what's the relevancy? Well, another thing, like if you have a look at the practice doing run, right? Uh, let's, let's step away from our corporate learning roles and let's think about like more hands-on activities because that's where you, you're really practicing doing. So I relate this back to my sports that I'm doing. So for example, with practicing doing, um, when I do a climb, um, can I remember the ne the climb the next time I do it? And the answer is actually a lot of the time, no. I forget 
what mm. the moves were the second time round. And so according to this, I should remember at least 75% of the moves, which is <laughs> absolutely not true, especially when you're in the flow is another thing. So um, mm. what, climb, what I find with climbers is that when it's really hard and you can't quite do the moves, then you remember it. But if it's an easy move and you just do it, right, and it's, like, really straightforward. Oh, sure, yeah. You, like, you know, my husband's much stronger than me. And when he comes down, he's like, I say, oh, how did you do that move? And he totally cannot remember at all because it wasn't hard for him. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that that's true even in, like, the corporate world, right? Like, if you take somebody who's brand new to instructional design and somebody who's done it for a long time and you try to get somebody who's done it for a long time to explain all the steps that they took, they have that same thing where they kind of just go, they get into the flow and they do their thing that they've always done. And that's just, you know, it's it's why not everyone can be a good teacher, exactly. right? Because some people just can't explain what they did. They just do it. Yeah, like a, a forklift operator, for example. Like they're really good at operating a forklift, but then if you ask them how to do it, because they have, they learned it so long ago, they, it's like instinctive for them yeah. at that point. Right, right, yeah. Well, and the other part that bothers me is we had a whole – we had a whole class on um, distance education in my PhD program for instructional design, where we actually looked at the real Dale's cone of experience that this pyramid is supposed to be based on. And it's, it looks nothing like it, right? Um, I don't know how familiar, are you familiar with Dale's no, cone? Not. Okay, so it is like, first of all, it's inverted. So it's bigger at the top than at the bottom. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to order audio-visual learning in order from concrete to abstract experiences. So, like, at the top is, like, a very purposeful learning experience where, like, the objectives are drawn out. I'm guiding you through a very intentional experience. And, um, like, there's heavy guidance because I want you to get... I want you to take away certain things and I'm not leaving much open to the to the imagination or to interpretation. And then at the in the midpoint is like um the example that he gives is like museum exhibits, right? There's some guidance there, right? Like in the way that they're organized in a museum and the information that's on the placards, but there's still quite a bit that's open to yeah, yeah, you don't have to go in order. You can take from it what you want. And then at the very bottom is like um, verbal and visual symbols. So like if you think of like an art museum and there's not really, there's an art installation, you know, you take from that what you want, mm -hmm. right? And so that was the goal was just to show like, if you want someone to take something very specific away, you may want to use more scaffolding than these types of things. There weren't any... There, there's no mention of retention. <laughs> there's no mention of percentages. And I do not know for the life of me how that evolved into this. But that's what, that's what like the interwebs say, right? Is that like this evolved from Dale's Cone. And I, I, I have no idea how. It, it's funny, like, I mean, this is sort of leading on to the, the other um, learning myth that's prevailing at the moment, which is the forgetting curve, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and basically people who are in the know have quite a lot of uh, issues with the forgetting curve because of the way that the study was done it was um 
done by Ebbinghauser a long time ago. (laughs) A long time ago. And he had a massive sample size of one. And the learning that he was doing was actually remembering, I think it was numbers. Um, And like nonsense number. Yeah, they didn't mean it. Exactly. So like if I said to you, can you remember the number 54278? And I mean, some people are actually good at that, but most are not, right? So um, I think that when we look at that study, we need to think about that there's a lot more dimension to remembering. So one of the thing, one of the words that I love, <laughs> my little favourite, is called obliterative subsumption, right? Um, and so that's the idea that your brain is actually taking all these masses amounts of information that's hitting us every single day and then saying, which bits should we throw out into the garbage? Now, if you think about yes. your house and what you're going to throw into the garbage, it's going to be the things that are not useful anymore, right? And um, where the things that we're going to keep are the things that are useful. Now, the question then becomes, in order to remember something, how do we make sure that what the person, what the information we're providing them is actually useful and relevant and that they have a reason for remembering it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important in the age of technology to consider how that has shifted and changed. Because like, you know, when you're growing up and you're in like elementary school or high school math, right? And they're like, you're going to have to know this because you're not going to have a calculator everywhere you go. And then it's like, hello, cell phones, right? I'm showing my age here (laughs) by talking about how we didn't have cell phones back when I was in school. Um, But, you know, like, and it's like, well, hello, cell phones. And so, you know, if you're if you're in L&D and you're teaching something, in my opinion, it shouldn't be something that folks can just Google, right? Like, that should be saved for like the tell me where and how to find those things. But I don't need to memorize necessarily all of the information that I did 20 years ago, right? So, so this, I actually, when I went back and looked at my PhD, I sort of did go into it in a little bit of detail. So um, I, I talked about deep and surface learning. Um, and so like I've got this definition where basically um, – if, if you look at uh, deep learning, it's basically where um, anything that you actually have to construct a mental model around it and you need to be able to apply that model to different situations. Whereas surface learning, it, it tends to be more the things that, um, you know, even a computer is capable of, like, you know, Google storing a piece of information that we can look up, like being able to calculate things. So really with our learning, what we want to be able to do is actually um, start thinking about the deep learning um, and how do we tap into that? How do we construct those mental models that people can attach that we they can initially learn the theory, but then also learn how to apply that theory within a particular context. Um, so, you know, for example, one of the um, one of the models that I'm looking at the moment is teaching analysts how to work better with the business. And so, in that particular model, you've got like different 
phases of the analysis process that they're going through. One phase, they're asking questions. The next phase, they're trying to come up with their plan. Um, so when you go through that model, what you want to be doing is, first of all, creating the framework for them that they can go, okay, at this stage, I need to do these particular tasks. But you also need to think, how can I demonstrate what this actually looks like in practice? Um, and so that way they have concrete examples that they can connect um, their uh, their experience to and then you know use that to relate back when they're actually in the situation. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I think that's that's so important to not just to learning, but I also find that a lot of job performance is based on confidence, right? And when you're encouraging that kind of deep learning and you're providing somebody that mental model, you're building that confidence that when they encounter a similar situation on the job, they feel more equipped and prepared to do whatever the thing is that they need. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think part of that, that's what we as learning professionals want to do is set up that safe space where they practice it in a scenario environment where there's no concern about if they don't quite do it right, are they getting feedback on it? Um, And so then they can also reflect on things like how do I feel in this moment when this particular thing happens to me? Um, So we're asking them those types of questions as well. And, um, And that way they've got that, you know, that framework and that, ability to go into the into the workplace um you know with a bigger toolkit yeah absolutely and they don't have to worry about getting fired from failing the <laughs> yes <laughs> we don't want people to fail <laughs> so this yes, also kind of leads on to you know that micro learning question as well so um yeah. i've seen like a lot of on the on the internet i've seen a lot of um people promoting it micro learning and I think it's great um, to you know a great concept to be able to do micro learning yeah uh, I, I definitely don't want to argue against it um, for me uh, what I do want to re-question is is it going to solve all of our problems because sometimes it's positioned as the you know the be all and end all <laughs> and yeah and when we talk about you know, deep and shallow learning, I I just wonder how can you effectively in a very, very quick learning session build up a a sense of deep learning? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. It would have to be like a series of micro learnings over time, right? Which then is not, is that really micro learning, well, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what they promote is that we're going to give you a snapshot every day or we're going to build these learning campaigns. Yeah. But still, even that, do you think that if you were doing something a bit deeper, do you think you could get your head into something in such a short space of time? No, no, uh-uh. that's yeah. And yeah. And I think there's a place and time for micro learning. Like you said, we don't want to argue against micro learning, right? Because it does have its merits. But I think we both saw the same post on LinkedIn where somebody was like, micro learning is all you need. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we were like, oh, use our platform and wait a minute. Sure other right? like, <laughs> <laughs> like throw away everything. Right. Um, 
Yeah, you only need micro learning. But no, I think that that's I think that's a really good point. And and where I've found a use for micro learning is, um, more so on like the refresher side of things, where it's like here's a concept that you probably learned about a really long time ago, right? So like for my scenario-based learning course that I run through Eduflow, Mm -hmm. one of the modules is on storytelling, right? Like to write a good scenario, you have to remember like the basic elements of storytelling that you probably learned in grade school, right? And so I used micro learning to be like, hey, remember all these things that you learned in grade school? Like you have to set up the exposition and then the rising action. It's like that same thing that you haven't revisited in so many years, but it's not in, by any means a deep learning experience, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, and there's other, definitely other applications. Like I think the other thing is the context for the learners. Like if they're on their phone because they're, field workers um, and they're on the job and they're not sitting in front of a computer and or they don't have much time they've only got snips of time in between you know their job is that they go get called out to job sites Um, they might only have two minutes here and there to learn things and so in that case you know we're constrained to how we can deliver it um, and how long the course can be as well and so I think that that's you know coming leading into um, learning styles as well and that learning preferences discussion is that as we design learning, um, we need to look at the environment people are learning in as well, not just their style, um, but also what is is surrounding them that's going to dictate how they can consume this learning. Um, which is becoming more and more relevant as we look at different job types because I think it's really easy um, as learning designers, we make a lot of assumptions about how people are learning and what their preferences are. And I know that personally I've fallen into some pretty bad traps. Um, So, for example, (laughs) probably the worst one I've done is that I – so one of my things that I love is I I love building – um, virtual collaborative learning. So, got, you know, building stuff out in Miro where it's activity-led. Um, we basically get a whole bunch of people into a Miro space and then we get them to ideate and solve problems together. And I've done gamification inside of Miro and it's great. I absolutely mm-hmm. love it. Uh, so I did this for a group of um, mortgage consultants. Uh, unfortunately, what I did not know is that mortgage consultants, okay, so first of all, they get paid, they are making a lot of money. So each hour, they're making huge amounts of money. I mean, huge. And so for them, time is absolutely precious. And second thing is that these guys are usually old school. So they're like, you know, in their, let's say fifties, they're quite happy to use pen and paper, um, Sure. If they're the best ones, they've got like an admin who's going to do all the, the techie stuff oh, for them. Sure. So they don't yeah. really like computers. They don't, <laughs> they're a bit yeah. scared of using a mouse. Um, and so we got into this session and I was like, oh, we're going to do a battle. <laughs> and we're going to argue the pros and cons of this thing. Anyway, they were like, just give us the facts. Give us give the facts now. Oh no! <laughs> and so, yeah, we had to very quickly abandon 
anything that was fun or gamified or outside of the core yeah. set of information because you know that they're, they're time pressured and you know obviously that's not necessarily a learning style um I guess sure. the word that I would use for it is learning preference but I'm also finding people yeah. are not liking the word learning preference either so I don't know I know it's a hard one it's yeah it's really hard because I don't even like the the connotation of like learning style right because like somehow we've taken like a style is just like how you like think about like your fashion sense right like my style is how I dress for like work but I also wear other things Mm -hmm. other than like what I wear for work right but somehow we've turned learning styles into this like jail that you cannot escape from, yeah. right? Like if you're a visual learner, you are stuck in visual learning prison and you cannot learn audio and you cannot learn through hands-on, right? And it's so silly that there's like these these like brick walls built around like something that's supposed to be meant to be, that's supposed to be more of like a preference, right? Yeah, and it depends on your context. Like let's say, for example, the, the visual one or versus auditory, right? I know that when I'm at my desk um, and I'm, let's say I'm in, in, in an office, um, I, well, I can't listen to things while I'm working because it distracts me. I just find that my cognitive yeah. load is too uh, high already. So um, therefore, yeah. like I will read stuff, but I won't sit and listen to, like I, I would love to be able to sit and listen to podcasts, but I just, if I'm working, I definitely can't. However, yeah. if I was in the car <laughs> going to work, yeah. then I would be happy to listen to a podcast because um, at that moment I'm not looking at anything apart from the road. Of course I'm looking at the road. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I can consume information from an auditory sense. Right. So it so depends on the context of the learner as to how they can receive this information. Right, yeah, and it depends on the information too, Absolutely. right? Like if it is, if it's new information, it might be different than if it's like something you're reviewing, right? And you just need someone to talk through it really quickly or or, or whatever. Um, but I remember like, I remember a couple of things. I remember struggling with the idea of learning styles because I didn't feel like I fit within any of those boxes. Same. What I prefer to do is like this. I prefer talking to people about things. That's how I best learn and retain information is like having conversations mm-hmm. and having that back and forth and having discussions. That's not a learning style. Like that's <laughs> not on the, the that's not one of the three choices, right? Well, like, and so it never resonated with me really because I was like, well, I guess that's sort of auditory, but not really because you know, it's having a conversation, right? So when I went back um, to my PhD, I had written here, yeah. Hall and Mosley list 13 different major learning style models. Like there are 13 models for learning styles. So I'm sure you could probably find one that's got that in it as a style. Yeah. You just have to find the model that yeah. fits with you. <laughs> right exactly yeah there was um what was it I forget whose it was oh I'm not gonna remember it now but it had all these like interpersonal intrapersonal natural like it added all these 
additional ones. And one of them was verbal. And I was like, oh, that's me. I'm the verbal one. This one's got, uh, so the Felder Silverman one has got processing perception. So processing is active reflective. So you'll probably be active if you're wanting to have conversations. Perception, uh, input, visual, verbal, um, organization, inductive, deductive, and understanding sequential global. So it's very different to the the one that we're more familiar yeah. with. Um, and, you know, there's there's multiple different learning models and so learning style models. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of dimensions to how we learn and to what our preferences are is, is my feeling. <laughs> Yeah. And the one thing I will say, though, is like with all of these myths, I think it's really important to just like be kind to people who've been duped into believing them. Because when I was in my grad degree program for curriculum and instruction, it's like a teacher education program. I did it back in 2014, University of Kansas. So not like some small little college, University of Kansas, they taught us how to differentiate for the three major learning styles, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. Mm. Again, this is just like eight years ago, right? That they're like perpetuating this myth at a major college in teacher education. And I think that's why we have so many educators coming into the field of L&D who believe these myths. It's not their It's not their fault. They're being taught them in their higher education. Well, you know? I, I guess there's just a the message needs to be we need to re-question what we're being taught and decide what is the the grounds for it in terms of research is there anything that's emerging and is it making sense to me because I think as you go forward and you're like well you know there's all these different learning styles Um, I'm not going to follow this too closely Um, what I am going to do is uh, and what I recommended in my PhD was to think how do I adapt different ways like the learning so that I'm thinking about all of the learning styles so how do I for example present the information both visually and verbally so that both of these um, groups are then able to adapt and even if there's no such thing as learning styles (laughs) it's going to benefit everybody Yeah, providing multiple ways to access information is always a good thing. To exactly. Do, right? Like regardless of it, of, of the myth. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So how do you take the, the good bits, as you mentioned before, about, you know, the myth having some truth? What is the thing that you can draw from that myth and then respond to in a way that's going to help everybody in the best way? Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Okay, so my last question for you is, if you had to choose one resource for folks to access to learn more about learning myths, what would it be and why? (laughs) Good question. Well, I think that uh, probably the the best thing would be uh, the LinkedIn group that we're currently starting, (laughs) which is the LinkedIn Learning Mythbuster group. So um, yeah, you should come along and uh, we'll drop drop it in the chat. Uh, sorry, drop it in the comments of this uh, post. Yeah, that goes out and uh, absolutely. And we'd love to see you there, and we'd love to actually hear from you as well about you know what are your myths that you would like to see busted, and what are some of the new emerging theories that you think are useful and that you think people should be sitting up and paying attention to. 
Yeah, it's a great conversation so far. There's like, I think there's, there's over like 100 people in the group at this point. Yeah, right? there is. And yeah, nice. we're starting to post and, you know, have conversations, yeah. which is, I think the most important thing, right. like the, the reflective part of it, that's, that's really where um, I, th I think we can draw a lot of value as uh, learning professionals is to be constantly re-questioning ourselves uh, and to be constantly asking, how can we do better? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'll post the link to that group in the show notes as well as on social media when I share the episode. But thank you so much, Kuba, for joining me. It's been great talking about learning. <laughs> thank you. It's so lovely to meet you as well. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.